chapter 11. So you can turn there in your Bibles with us if you like. Uh, Paul has uh, interrupted his discourse on uh, living by the power of the Spirit and having the Holy Spirit within in Romans chapter 8 and the victory that it brings to us when we allow ourselves to be led of the Spirit rather than following the desires of our bodies or the natural desires of the unrenewed mind. Uh, he uh, takes a little bit of a, what seems to be a little bit of a detour. It's really not as part of the, uh, uh, there's, a, there's a purpose in what he does and why he does it, but it seems like he uh, shifts gears a little bit in chapters 9, 10, and 11. And in those chapters, he talks about God's dealings with Israel. Now, you need to realize that everything about Paul's ministry is that the law has been done away with. Everything about Paul's ministry is that the law of Moses is not in effect. Man is dead to the law. It's not, uh, you don't come to God through the law anymore, the keeping of the rituals or the uh, offering of sacrifices or anything like that. It's all through the work of Jesus, the finished work of Jesus. Uh, it's what he calls grace. And, uh, and as such, um, that is the, well, certainly the primary cause of the trouble that Paul had in his ministry because the Jews would stir up trouble everywhere that he went preaching this message. But it's the backbone of everything that Paul preached. Now, Paul received a lot of criticism uh, for what he preached. Certainly, he was uh, opposed in, um, uh, well, if you look at the book of Acts, there's only one city that, that we have record of. We don't know this is the only one, but it's the only one that we have record of that Paul didn't get run out of, at least the first time he was there. Now, sometimes there would be a miracle or some kind of miraculous thing that would happen, and Paul would return after he'd gotten run off. And then establish a church there as he did in uh, several of the churches in the region of Galatia. But, uh, but Paul is being criticized, roundly criticized by the Jews. And please understand the mindset of the Jews. Now when I talk about the Jews, I'm talking about the nation of Israel. Uh, certainly God deals with, with man as an individual and not as part of a group, any group. But, um, and, and so therefore salvation is available to any person, any individual that chooses to receive Jesus as their Lord and Savior chooses to accept the finished work of Jesus as their own. But the nation of Israel is what Paul is really talking about in these 9th, 10th, and 11th chapters. And as a result, the nation of Israel has spent thousands of years with the knowledge that they're God's favorite. Not just favorite, they're the only nation that God cares anything about. Everything else that God said he deals with the other nations about is for the benefit of Israel, the nation of Israel. You know as well as I do, and we see even in the Gospels in Jesus' ministry, Jesus even engages in this, where the Jews called every other nation, every other, uh, and, and all the other nations of the world are grouped up into Gentiles, the category of Gentiles. The Jews called everybody outside the nation of Israel dogs. Now, you want to talk about racism today, it doesn't hold a candle to the racism that existed for thousands of years, propagated by the Jews because they were proud of being God's chosen people. Now, you know as well as I do that God didn't, is not racist and God doesn't inspire or instill racism in anybody. And so God did not choose Israel to be his covenant partner or to be his favored nation, his people, as it says in the Old Testament. He didn't pick them to be his people so that they could lord it over everybody else on the earth. But that's exactly what's happened. They've trusted in the fact that God has been on their side for thousands of years. And as a result, they've taken a... Uh, can we say uppity attitude toward everybody else? They look down their nose and condescend toward everybody else because of God's favored status upon them. Now, chapter 11, Paul is going to deal with God, going to tell us about God's final dealings with Israel, meaning the nation of Israel. The first thing that he says starts off in chapter 11, verse 1. Paul has just made the case 
through the Old Testament, through the writings of the prophets themselves in the Psalms. He's made the case that Israel was never intended to be the only people that God wanted to reach. Israel has never been intended to be the only ones that God wanted a relationship with. God wanted a relationship with man. But Israel did have favored status because of Abraham's covenant that, uh, that God chose to make with him. And the law was to show them who their father was, who their heavenly father was or it was intended to be. But it was, in the, it was designed to, the law was designed to show them that you can't make it to him on your own. You need help. You need God to do something in your place. It was supposed to lead them to faith in Jesus and they rejected that. And so Paul is going to talk about God's final plan for Israel, the nation of Israel. But he's going to try to keep the church from developing the same uppity attitude toward the Jews that the Jews have had toward the Gentiles for thousands of years. So you can see both sides of it. So the first thing he says is, I say then, has God cast away his people? God forbid. For I also am an Israelite of the seed of Abraham and of the tribe of Benjamin. Paul's saying, I'm proof that God hadn't cast away the Jews. If God has cast away the Jews, I couldn't be in. Now, it's interesting, and I don't know if there's significance to it or not, but it might be worth mentioning. The tribe of Benjamin was one of the few tribes, the one and a half tribes that went with Judah when the kingdom of Israel split. Ten and a half tribes went one way, one and a half tribes went the other way. Judah and half of Benjamin went with the southern kingdom, and they represented God's chosen people. He represented the spiritual line in the, the comparison between Ishmael and Isaac. So Paul may be talking about himself in relation to the remnant that he's going to mention in just a minute. But let me, let me draw your attention to something. I don't care if you turn back there to read it or not. But in uh, John chapter 4, do you remember the story of Jesus talking to the woman at the well of Samaria? Remember the story? Jesus is sitting there by himself. The disciples have gone on into town. Jesus is sitting there by himself next to the well. And a woman comes up. She's a half-breed Jew. She's not a purebred Jew, which means her parents or her her ancestors somewhere along the way have intermarried, which was against the law of Moses, intermarried with other uh, people. And uh, so Jesus says, ask the woman, give me something to drink. Well, she's shocked because Jews don't have any dealings with people that aren't Jews. That's the, the attitude, the down-your-nose look and attitude that they have toward the rest of the world. So she said, who are you being a Jew would ask of me, being a Samaritan, to give you something to drink? Then Jesus starts talking to her about spiritual things, and she doesn't get it. He said, if you knew who was talking to you, you'd ask me for water that you'd never thirst again. He's talking about the new birth. He's talking about eternal life. She says, give me this water. She's thinking naturally. She says, give me this water so I don't have to come to the well and carry it off on my shoulders every day. Jesus said, go call your husband. She said, I don't have a husband. He said, yeah, you're right. You've had three husbands, and the guy you're living with now is not your husband. So as far as Jesus is concerned, living together doesn't make you married. I know that goes over big with a lot of the young people, but nevertheless, that's what the Bible says. It also tells us that Jesus recognizes marriage and divorce and remarriage. But that's another subject. So she says, I don't have a husband. Jesus said, yeah, you're right. You had three, and now the guy you're living with is not your husband. She said, sir, I perceive you're a prophet. Now, the next thing she says is about worshiping God, which indicates to me that she had some spiritual sense to her, but she still hasn't heard enough of Jesus or hadn't heard anything of Jesus, doesn't know who Jesus is, has no reason to to know he's anybody other than those things supernaturally at that point. So she says this. She said, sir, our ancestors say that or your forefathers, your fathers say that we're to worship God in this mountain, but my people worship God somewhere else, which is right. 
And Jesus answers what I want to draw to your attention. He said, you don't know what you're worshiping. But we do because salvation is of the Jews. Now, what does Jesus mean when he says salvation is of the Jews? What's he talking about? Well, he's talking about the covenant. The covenant means the covenant line, the line of David, was to provide the sacrifice, him, himself, to offer a sacrifice for our sins. But you know as well as I do that the Jews rejected Jesus. And as a result, Jesus went to the Gentiles. Not only did they reject Jesus in his earthly ministry, but they rejected the ministry of salvation after Jesus was raised from the dead. So what I want you to get a a hold of is that salvation was of the Jews when Jesus was here on the earth. So now here's this guy, Paul, that comes along saying salvation is not of the Jews anymore. He's changing thousands of years of Jewish history and heritage. You could well understand that the Jews, perhaps well-meaning, well-intentioned Jews would say, whoa, 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 where'd you get that? And why are we supposed to listen to you? You see the problem he's facing in his ministry. Here's the other side of this. This is the part that fascinates me. The courage and the refusal to turn away from what he knew in Paul, the courage of Paul, and his refusal to turn away what God had revealed to him is just fascinating to me. Out of all the people that have lived since Jesus has been raised from the dead, how many do you think we could find that would stick in that place? I hope that it's more than I'd guess because I'm guessing that a lot of people would cave. But he didn't. He stayed with what he knew was true. So that's what he's talking about when he gets to the point where part of the rumor about his ministry is that Paul is saying that God has given up on his favored nation. God has given up on his people, the nation of Israel. And that was intended. Those rumors were started by the Jews and they were intended to incite violence against Paul and worked pretty well. Everywhere Paul came, he didn't even have a chance to preach. Once the people said his name, says, oh, we know about you. We want to kill you right away. They didn't even know what he was preaching. But because there was so much rumor and misinformation about what he was preaching, what he was saying, and what he was standing for, that's the reason why Paul prayed three times for the Lord to take this thing away from him. That was Paul's thorn in the flesh. And it buffeted him time after time. The word buffeted that he uses in 2 Corinthians 12 is deliver blow after blow. Blow after blow after blow was delivered him against him in city after city after city after city after city. If sickness was Paul's thorn, then that means he got sick again and again and again and again and again. Because the word used means deliver blow after blow. Sickness doesn't do that. So Paul says, first and foremost, has God cast away his people? Does all this mean does at the end of the law and, and man be dead to the law, the church being dead to the law, and the Jews having... The, the law of the Jews having been displaced by Jesus, does that mean God has cast away his people? No. In no way has he cast away his people. I'm proof of that. God has not cast away his people, verse 2, which he foreknew. The word foreknew means to make himself known. God hadn't cast away the people that he made himself known to. Watch ye not. Don't you know what the scripture says of Elijah. How that he made intercession to God against Israel. This is in 1 Kings 19. After the, uh, the great contest on the Mount Carmel. Where fire came down from heaven. And he killed the, the uh, 450 prophets of Baal. 
He made intercession to God against Israel, saying, Lord, they have killed my prophets, or thy prophets, and dig down thine altars, and I am left alone, and they seek my life. But what saith the answer of God unto him? I have reserved to myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to the image of Baal. Even so, Paul uses the Old Testament example or story as proof of how God deals with Israel. Even so, then at this present time also there is a remnant according to the election of grace. Now, what is the election of grace? Salvation through accepting Jesus. Any person that accepts Jesus and his sacrifice is their own or in their stead or as their substitute is part of the elect. So the election of grace means salvation through Jesus. Now, that's the manner. The word according means in the manner of. So he says, so then even now there's a remnant. There's a small group of Israelites that have been saved through Jesus, which is the only way there is to God nowadays. Paul speaking of his time, the same thing's true of our time. And if by grace, verse 6, then it is no more of works. Now, Paul's going to say some things that sound kind of confusing in the King James. But basically what he's saying is you can't have it both ways. It's either works, man's work toward God, or it's God's work of grace toward man. It's one or the other. There's not a mixture of the two. So he says, and if by grace, then it is no more of works. Otherwise, grace is no more grace. If you have to work for grace, it's not grace. Otherwise, grace is no more grace. But if it be of works, then it is no more grace. Otherwise, work is no more work. Either you're doing it or God did it for you. One of the two. And that's the, that's the conflict that he has in his ministry. He's saying it's by grace. It's by the finished work of Jesus. The Jews are saying you've got to keep the law of Moses. Paul is saying you can't have it both ways. They don't work together. They can't work together. What then? Israel hath not obtained that which he seeketh for. Now, what is Israel seeking for? What's he talking about? He's talking about the law of Moses. Israel was looking for that and the keeping of the law, their action and behavior as a means of obtaining righteousness. So that which he seeks for is righteousness. So he says, what then? Israel has not obtained righteousness, but the election, those that have been saved by Jesus, saved through, the, through faith in Jesus, the election has obtained it, righteousness. And the rest were blinded. According as it is written. Now he's going to go back to the Old Testament. According as it is written. God has given them the spirit of slumber. Eyes that they should not see. And ears that they should not hear. Unto this day. In other words he's saying. You remember over in, uh, in Romans chapter 1. Where we looked at uh, the progression. Of the hardness of heart. How that man did not want to retain the knowledge of God. And so God gave him over to a reprobate mind. A lot of times people want to take these words God gave or God uh, caused them to have an eyes that didn't see and they think that God's in heaven saying, okay, too bad for you. You've got blinders on. You can't see. Now, if you could see, you could get saved, but you're out. That's not what happens. It's the fact that Israel rejected Jesus. And once you start down the path of accepting something or pursuing something that's contrary to the things of God, you'll give yourself more and more and more to it. Now, why is that? Is that God opening some door in heaven or pulling back on some lever to let you go further than you ever intended to go? No, it's the more you feed your flesh, the more into sin you get. Very few people that are addicted to things start off addicted to them. But the more they give themselves to it, the more they participate in the activity, the more and more it gets a hold of them. That's what this is talking about. And that's just a principle of life. So he said, because they rejected Jesus... 
God has given them the spirit of slumber, eyes that they would not see or should not see, and ears that they should not hear unto this day. Now keep that in mind, unto this day. Paul is saying Israel. Now he's not talking about individuals. He's not talking about the unsaved Jews. He's talking about the nation of Israel as a whole is blinded because it's the nation, the rulers of Israel that rejected Jesus on behalf of the people. They set them on this path. And David said, let their table be a snare and a trap and a stumbling block and a recompense unto them. Now, what was their table? What did Israel have? Israel had a relationship with God that no other nation had. But they had a relationship with him without fellowship. They didn't walk according to his ways. They didn't walk according to his commandments. They didn't seek the righteousness that God was trying to show them that they could not obtain by the law. Nobody was trying to obtain it that way. They were trying to see who can be the best at keeping the the commandments. And so the table, the relationship with God that God instituted and created through Abraham and the covenant that he made with Abraham became a stumbling block to them because now they've missed the whole point. You know, the Bible says back in, uh, uh, well, Galatians talking about Genesis 15, the example or the, uh, the story of God appearing to Genesis, appearing to Abraham in Genesis 15 and making a covenant with him. The Bible says in Galatians 3, it says, God preached the gospel unto Abraham. Paul is telling us by the Holy Ghost that God preached the gospel unto Abraham. In other words, when Abraham, uh, apparently, when Abraham fell into that deep sleep and, and it tells about the, the, the supernatural things that were happening around the covenant ritual, apparently God revealed to Abraham at that point in time. If it wasn't then, we don't know when it would have been because that's what Paul connects it to. But apparently Paul revealed or uh, God revealed to Abraham at that point in time, this is where this thing's supposed to wind up. It's supposed to wind up with me sending my son. It's supposed to wind up with me offering to Israel one sacrifice made in heaven by sending my son to the earth to die on the cross to alleviate any need for any of the rituals and law of Moses or anything else that's going to come down the road. That's why the Bible says that Abraham was the father of faith, not the father of law. Doesn't even say Abraham was the father of obedience. Because Abraham's obedience was faith. And that's what obedience to God is today. So David said, Let their table be an air, a snare unto them, and a trap, and a stumbling block, and recompense or a just reward unto them. Let their eyes be darkened that they may not see. Talking about the Israel, the nation of Israel, and bow down their back always. I say then. Now, Paul's talking, have they, the nation of Israel, stumbled that they should fall? The word fall means permanently be, be severed. In other words, he's saying, one translation says it this way, have they stumbled so that they fall and never be able to get up? In other words, Paul is talking about how long is Israel is going to be in this condition, the nation of Israel? How long is it going to be like this? Is it going to be like this forever? He says, no, that's not the way it's going to be. See, now he's going to reveal, start revealing what God's final plan for Israel is, the nation of Israel is all about. Have they stumbled that they should never get up? No. God forbid, but rather through their fall, salvation has come to the Gentiles. Fall meaning the rejection of Jesus. The rejection of Jesus. Now, if the fall is the rejection of Jesus, but they're not going to be permanently in that condition, then God's got a good plan for the nation of Israel. 
Israel won't always be in a place where they rejected Israel, talking about the nation of Israel. They won't always reject Jesus. That's what Paul's saying. And he can only know that by revelation of the Holy Ghost, and then he's going to back it up with some Old Testament scripture. God forbid, but rather through their fall, rejecting of Jesus, salvation is coming to the Gentiles for to provoke them to jealousy. Notice why God said, or what Paul said, by the Holy Ghost, that God gave Gentiles the opportunity to be saved. Certainly it's because God wants all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. The Bible's real clear on that. God wants all of mankind as a part of his family. Why would, want, why would God want some uh, of mankind as part of his family and not all of it? Why make it all if you don't want all of it in your family? But it says that salvation came to the Gentiles as far as Israel is concerned, as far as the nation of Israel is concerned, to provoke them to jealousy. The Jews are supposed to look at the church and be jealous of our relationship and fellowship with God. That's what God intended. Now, if the fall of them be the riches of the world, in other words, if their stumbling, if their rejection of Jesus enabled the world to become rich by having access to salvation and the diminishing of them as a nation, God's chosen nation, favored nation, be the riches of the Gentiles, how much more will their fullness? In other words, he's saying, don't take a bad attitude toward the Jews. Don't take the same attitude that the Jews had toward the Gentiles before Jesus and say, well, they got what's coming to them. They rejected Jesus too bad for them. He's saying the coming back in of the nation of Israel will be the fullness and the riches of both the world and the Gentiles. We'll benefit when Israel comes back. That's what he's saying. For I speak to you Gentiles. Notice that he's not writing these chapters to the Jews, even though there are some Jews that are saved and some Jews make up the church at Rome. He's writing this to the Gentiles. For I speak to you Gentiles, inasmuch as I am the apostle of the Gentiles, I magnify my office. Now he's going to say something again about provoking the nation of Israel to jealousy. If by any means, in other words, he's saying, I magnify my office for this purpose. If by any means I may provoke to emulation, word emulation, same word jealousy. Translated a couple of verses before. That I might provoke to jealousy them which are my flesh, meaning natural Israelites, and might save some of them. In other words, I'm trying to make this remnant as big as I can make it. How do you do that? By getting people to accept Jesus. How do you do that today? By getting people to accept Jesus. For if the casting away of them be the reconciling of the world, why were they cast away? Because they rejected Jesus. Why did they lose their position? Why was the law of Moses diminished or displaced as far as mankind was concerned? So that the Gentiles could, see, could find a way into salvation and receive Jesus. For if the casting away of them be the reconciling of the world, what shall be the receiving of them? What shall be Israel coming back to God? What shall that be like? But... Life from the dead. God's got a great plan for Israel at the end. But it's not during the church age. The church age is one and only one way to God, and that's through Jesus. For if the first fruit be holy, and the first fruit is the remnant he's just talked about, those Jews that have accepted Jesus and made him Lord of their lives, if the first fruit be holy, the lump, Israel, the nation of Israel, is also holy, or will be. 
And if the root, the root of, of Israel is Abraham. And if the root be holy, then so are the branches. Now, what are the branches? The two branches out of Abraham are the Jews and the Gentiles. Now, you might say, well, Gentiles didn't come from Abraham. Well, he's talking about the two branches of mankind. He's talking about the two branches of mankind. And as a, res- as a result of the old branch being taken away, the Jews, that, the nation of Israel that rejected Jesus, then he's going to tell about how the Gentiles were grafted in. So it's gotta, the branch has got to be the Gentiles and the Jews. So he said, and if some of the branches, verse 17, be broken off. Now, that's, these he's talking about as the nation of Israel rejecting Jesus. If some of the branches be broken off and thou, Gentiles, being a wild olive tree, were grafted in among them and with them partakest of the root and the fatness of the olive tree, boast not against the branches. But if thou boast against the nation of Israel, in other words, then thou bearest not the root, but the root is thee. In other words, he's saying, you don't have Abraham's attitude, you don't have the right attitude, the love of God in your heart, if you're boasting against the Jews and trying to hold some kind of attitude that they held against the Gentiles for all those years. In other words, he's saying, be happy that God's got a plan for the, for the Jews. Now, folks, stop and think about it for a minute. What's the, what does the church look like in Paul's day? It's predominantly Gentiles. By the time Paul writes this, it starts in Jerusalem. It starts with the Jews. But pretty quickly, the Jews start messing things up and the gospel gets spread out to other, other lands and other cities. And people receive Jesus like crazy. Paul goes into cities and the whole cities turn out to hear him the next week. And signs and wonders and miracles are done. Which, by the way, when Paul says he magnifies his office that he might provoke the Jews, the unsaved Jews, to jealousy... The reason he connects that with magnifying his office is because Paul is known everywhere as a miracle worker. He's known everywhere as somebody that God is with. Every time the Jews stir up trouble, they throw him in jail and God causes an earthquake to open the jail. The Jews stir up trouble to have him stoned and killed and they leave him for dead and and the Spirit of God raises him up and he walks back into town the next day. He's known as a miracle worker. He's known as a healer. All the things that we have record of in the book of Acts are widely known. I mean, the story spread like wildfire. As a matter of fact, there are probably a lot of things that he's known for that we don't have record of in the book of Acts. And so where Paul says, I magnify my office as an apostle to the Gentiles, he's saying, I want everybody to know the power of God that works through me because I want that to provoke Israel, the nation of Israel, who used to have the power of God with them, It was the power of God that delivered them from Egypt and parted the Red Sea. Now the power of God's working on me. And I want them to see they don't have it anymore. The church does. That's what he's talking about. That's why salvation is intended to provoke the Jews, the nation of Israel, to jealousy. The church is supposed to look like Jesus did. The church is supposed to look like Paul did. So Paul, even in his day, and it's even more so, I'm sure, today... The church was predominantly a Gentile church. Now, there were Jewish believers in, in probably every city that Paul started churches in. I'm, there were certainly Jewish believers here in Rome, judging by the list of people he says to say hello to and all that kind of stuff. But still, the church is predominantly a Gentile church. So he's talking to the Gentiles about their attitude toward the nation of Israel. Now, folks, understand that nobody has ever liked Israel's looking down their nose at the rest of the world. 
And a lot of the trouble that, that has come against Israel has been unsaved people operating in the flesh against Israel operating in the flesh against them. And that's the, re- the reason, the natural reason, less for, at least for a lot of the persecution that the nation of Israel has enjoyed all these year, many, many years, hundreds of years. Does it have to be that way? No, but the devil knows God's got a plan for him too. So he's trying to stir up trouble. Plus, Israel hasn't helped their cause. It's not like Israel's been the nice guy in most situations. They're much nicer guys nowadays than they ever were in Paul's day. It was probably progressively worse the further and further back it went. So Paul says, I know what your attitude is going to be, or it might be at least in verse 19. You will then say, the branches were broken off. Israel was broken off so that I might be grafted in. It was all about me. Paul says, well, because of unbelief, they were broken off. Unbelief meaning rejecting Jesus. That's the only reason they were broken off is they rejected Jesus. So it wasn't about you. It was their action, not you, he's saying to the Gentiles. Well, because of unbelief, they were broken off, and thou standest by faith. He said, be not high-minded, but fear. In other words, you were privileged to be able to believe God, and they still won't. But that can change. For if God spared not the natural branches, take heed that he also spare not thee. In other words, you quit believing God, you quit walking by faith, you might find yourself out on the outs too. Can you see the attitude that he's trying to guard against where the Gentile church is concerned? He's saying, don't take sides against the nation of Israel. God still cares about these people. He's got a plan for them. Now, again, his plan during the church age. See, some people will hear that and they'll say, well, see, God's still on Israel's side. No, God's on Jesus' side. And so for the church age, there's only one way toward God, whether it's Jew or Gentile, and that's Jesus. And that was Paul's ministry. If, if you're Jewish... Accept Jesus and set aside everything else. If you're Gentile, accept Jesus and set aside everything else. It's the same message, and it's the only message there is as long as the church is here. And I'll prove it to you as we go when Paul talks about God's final dealings with Israel. Behold, therefore, the goodness and the severity of God. On them which fell, rejected Jesus, severity. But toward thee, goodness, if you continue in his goodness. In other words, goodness is something you can walk away from. Don't do that. What is the goodness he's talking about? Faith in Jesus. The blessings of God that are ours. The sonship privileges we have because we've made Jesus the Lord of our lives. Otherwise thou also shall be cut off. And if they also, if they abide not still in unbelief, shall be grafted in. All it takes is them getting saved. All it takes is them accepting Jesus and they're in. So don't take the attitude or the idea that God's through with them and never going to deal with them again and it's all over for them. They had their chance, they rejected Jesus, and it's done. Saying that's not the case. All it takes is an individual believing in Jesus and they're in. For God is able to graft them in again. For if thou wert cut out of the olive tree, which is wild by nature, he's talking about the, the, uh, the sin of mankind that he went through in chapters 1 and 2. If you were cut out of the olive tree which is wild by nature and grafted contrary to nature into a good olive tree, how much more shall these, which be the more natural branches, be grafted into their own olive tree? You understand how uh, grafting, what the purpose of grafting is? You don't take a good tree and graft a bad branch onto it because it messes up the whole tree. You take a bad branch and graft it into a good tree. 
I'm sorry, I said that backwards. You take a good branch and graft it into a bad root. Because then the good branch will pull the life from the root but produce good fruit. And that's the picture that Paul is making here about the Gentiles being grafted in. He said if Israel turns around, how easy is it going to be for God to graft them back into their own tree? Simple. So he said, for I would not, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery. Now he's going to get down to something really important. He's going to tell them something that's hidden. Mysteries are hidden things. Mysteries are things you can't see clearly. He says, I don't want you to be ignorant of this mystery. Now what's the mystery that he's going to reveal? God's plan for Israel at the end. Israel meaning the nation of Israel. God's got a plan for the nation of Israel. And I would not, brethren, have you ignorant or want you to be ignorant of this mystery lest you should be wise in your own conceits in other words the reason for my revealing this mystery to you and showing you what god's plan for israel the nation of israel is at the end is so that you don't get lifted up in pride about who you are and what you think god's done for you because of you in other words don't take the same attitude israel took so i'm going to reveal something to you that'll keep you out of that if you'll understand it What's the mystery? That blindness in part, blindness is, uh, margin of my Bible says hardness, meaning the hardness of Israel's heart, the rejection of the nation of Israel uh, of Jesus, that the blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles become in. Now, if it's primarily a Gentile church, what is the fullness of the Gentiles coming in? Folks, remember the Bible says that Jesus is waiting for the precious fruit of the earth. And has long patience until he received the early and the latter rain. What is it talking about? It's talking about the harvest that will be reaped when Jesus comes back in the rapture for the church. That's when everything changes. Until then, it's the fullness of the Gentiles because the church worldwide is primarily a Gentile church. There's a remnant of Israelites that are in the family of God and they'll make the rapture just like everybody else will. But the, the, church, the worldwide church is primarily a Gentile church. And that's the fullness of the Gentiles that's being spoken of. Paul is saying this is going to stay this way. The nation of Israel is going to be blind by and large. Individual Jews can still get saved by their, at their will. All they have to do is accept Jesus. But by and large, the nation of Israel will continue to reject Jesus as the Messiah until the rapture. And then everything changes. And so all Israel shall be saved. Notice what happens as soon as the Gentiles, the fullness of the Gentiles come in or the rapture takes place. God is going to work in such a mighty way with Israel so that Paul says all Israel shall be saved. Now let's examine that for a minute. What does he mean that all Israel shall be saved? Again, he's not saying every Jew on the face of the earth will be born again. Because if you go to Zechariah chapter 13, which talks about the condition of of, uh, Israel, the nation of Israel, during both the tribulation... And then also the millennium. Well, mostly the tribulation. But it says that there will be three parts. God will divide Israel into three parts. Two of the three parts will die. One third, the third part, will be refined like silver and gold. So what's he saying? When he says all Israel shall be saved, he's saying the nation of Israel shall turn back to God. But that doesn't mean every individual Jew will be born again. So when he says all Israel, he's talking about the nation of Israel. 
let me jump ahead a little bit and, and, and try to clarify some things. What was God's covenant with Israel? We think heaven because we're Gentiles. We're part of the church. And so we think God's ultimate goal was heaven. It wasn't for Israel. Israel thinks very little of heaven. Do you realize that none of the disciples ever asked Jesus about going to heaven? Now, when Jesus said, I'm going to go away to the Father, I'm going to be gone for a little while, and then I'll be back again. They didn't know where he was talking about going. They didn't understand that. But heaven is not in the Jews' vocabulary. The Jew has no hope. The Jew has no expectation of going to heaven unless he's been Gentiled. And what I mean by that is unless he's heard the epistles and the teachings of Paul to the church to understand that, the, that the, the, the kingdom of God is a spiritual kingdom. It's a kingdom within. But how many times do we see in Jesus' ministry where over and over again the disciples came or somebody came to Jesus and said, Lord, will you now at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Why is that such a big deal to them? Because Israel is the one people on the face of the earth that has been guaranteed or promised through covenant with Abraham, their forefather, land. And folks, at the end, the new Jerusalem comes, and where does it sit? On the land that God promised Abraham. See, we think of spending eternity in heaven. The Bible really didn't talk about that. The Bible says we go to heaven, and then we return with Jesus back to the earth, and then God, uh, after certain things take place, then Jesus recreates the heaven and earth. He makes a new heaven and a new earth, and then he lives here with us. Now, symbolically, that's heaven because that's the, the dwelling place of God. But literally, it's earth. So what is Israel concerned about? What is Israel about? Israel has always been about and always will be about land, about territory. That's not true for me. I mean, I care about land when it comes to our church's needs. I care about land when it comes to my family's needs for, and having a house and that kind of stuff. But outside of that, land is not my issue. Is it yours? Unless you're in the land business, unless that's your career, why would it be? We believe God and need to believe God for certain things to, to own and possess or whatever the case might be. But Israel is all about land. It's all about territory. It always has been about territory and it always will be about territory. Because that's part of the covenant that God made with, with Abraham. In fact, the Bible says during the millennium that the nations of the earth that don't get saved during the tribulation period after Jesus comes back to the earth and sets up his millennial kingdom the Bible says he rules with a rod of iron which means everybody is not on board if everybody is willingly accepting the rule of Jesus during the millennium what do you have to rule with a rod of iron for the implication is Jesus keeps things in line because people are straining to get out of line now I've got my own ideas about what that's going to look like and I can't wait But one of the things the Bible says during the millennium is the nations of the earth that reject Jesus, that still reject God, are forced to come to Jerusalem at the temple. God reestablishes the temple with Jesus here on the earth, has to come to the temple in Jerusalem once a year or else it won't rain on their lands. Where do they have to go to? The land of Israel. See, for Israel, it's all about territory. It's not about heaven. You talk to a Jew about heaven, they'll look at you like you fell out of a tree. 
What do I care about heaven for? I've got a covenant for land here on the earth. And that's why it was so hard for Jesus to get his disciples to understand about spiritual kingdoms. When he talked to Pilate, he said, my kingdom is not on this earth. If it were, my disciples would fight. But it's not. Why was Pilate so interested to know about his intent for the kingdom and the disciples and whether or not they were going to fight? Because that's what Jews do. They fight for their land. They always have had to fight for their land. From the time that they first disobeyed God, after they took possession of the promised land, they've been fighting for the land ever since. That's what all the argument is about today. That's the reason why there's no peace treaty, because everybody wants their land. It's part of their covenant. So when Paul is talking to Israel, or talking to the church rather, talking to the Gentile church, about the fullness of the Gentiles coming in and all Israel being saved, he's talking about the fulfillment of the covenant that God made through Abraham. Now there are three events that you need to keep in mind. Two of them regard Israel, one of them regards the church. The first is the rapture of the church. We know that takes place because of how the Bible says, even what Paul says about uh, how God starts dealing with Israel. For example, let me go ahead and finish reading verse 26. And so all Israel shall be saved. As it is written, there shall come out of Zion the deliverer and shall turn away ungodliness from Jacob. That last phrase, turn away ungodliness for Jacob, the literal translation says, take away the sins of Israel. Now, can I ask you a question? After the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, after the rapture of the church takes place, how is God going to take away the sins of Israel? That presupposes that the church is not here. That presupposes and necessitates that the church is not here. Because now he's talking about doing things, and you know as well as I do, even during the tribulation, the temple is rebuilt and the sacrifice is starting to be remade. Why? I don't need that, do you? If the church was here at the tri- during the tribulation, which thank God we're not, But if the church was here during the tribulation, do we have to go to Jerusalem and make a sacrifice in the temple? We would never need to do that. Jesus has has negated all that, done away with the need for any of those things. But that's what Israel does. Why? But it's because it's part of the process of the nation of Israel coming back to recognize that Jesus is the Messiah so that God can take away the sins of Israel. So the first event is the rapture of the church. The second event is the deliverance of Israel. And the third event is the judgment of the nations. The last two has more to do with Israel than it does anybody else. The church is not going to be involved or affected by the deliverance and the process that's described in some detail in in, uh, Revelation about how God delivers Israel or takes away the sin of Israel. We're going to be involved in judging the nations, but on the positive side of that, on the judging side rather than the judgment side. See, those are things that have to do with Abraham's covenant. And it all goes back to Israel's original desire, and that is to be supreme, the the supreme nation of the earth, of all the peoples on the earth. It's in their DNA. It's part of their covenant promise. Let's finish this up. Verse 27, for this is my covenant unto them when I will take away their sins. When I will take away their sins. Now, wait a minute. Didn't Jesus already do that? 
He's talking about God's final plan for the nation of Israel. Not the salvation that's available for anyone, Jew or Gentile, through faith in Jesus. As concerning the gospel, talking about the nation of Israel, they are enemies for your sakes. Paul knew that firsthand. Concerning the gospel, they're enemies. Notice how Paul separates who they are from what they do. Concerning the gospel, they're your enemies. But as touching the election, that's salvation through Jesus, they are beloved for the Father's sake. God's still got a plan for Israel. For the gifts and callings of God are without repentance. God intended for Israel to be his people from the beginning, and they will be. That doesn't mean every person that's a Jew, every person that's been born a descendant of Abraham is going to make heaven. That doesn't mean that at all. But it does mean that the nation of Israel shall recognize God as their God once again. For as you in times past have not believed God, yet have now obtained mercy through their unbelief, their rejecting of Jesus enabled you to have received the mercy of God, to have faith in Jesus. Even so have these also now not believed, that through your mercy they may also obtain mercy. What's the mercy that the church is supposed to give to Israel? Well, we ought to pray for them. We ought to do what we can to reach them. But we ought to also pray for God's plan, final plan and purpose to be realized. For God has concluded them all, Jew and Gentile, in unbelief, that he may have mercy upon all. Now, folks, keep this in mind because when we get to chapter 12 next week, Paul starts off talking about this mercy. He says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God. So now he's talking about how that we've received mercy and Israel will receive mercy too. Then finally, Paul concludes in the last three or four verses, last four verses, he gets overwhelmed with, with the, the plan and the purpose of God. He says, oh, that the depths of the riches, oh, the depths of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. For who has known the mind of the Lord who has been his counselor? Or who has first given to him and it shall be recompensed unto him again? For of him are all things, and through him are all things, and to him, unto him are all things, to whom be glory forever. Amen. Paul concludes this chapter talking about how wonderful is the plan of God. Now, what is the mystery of God? The mystery of God is that righteousness, salvation is available to anyone, Jew or Gentile, through faith in Jesus and his finished work. But even after the church is gone from here, God is going to do some wonderful and mighty and awesome, spectacular things so that the nation of Israel that has rejected Jesus will be shown and proven to that Jesus is the Messiah. And they'll come back in. And that'll be a glorious day for us. It'll be a day when we rejoice too. Now we've got, to, we've got to guard against natural thinking, and I'm sure all this natural thinking will be done away with when we receive our redeemed bodies. But I know what some people are thinking right now because I know what thoughts come to me. We're going to be in heaven, and we're going to say, well, what did you go to all the trouble for Israel for? You had us. We're the ones that you really wanted to get to. And who are they? They've always thought they were better than everybody else. That's what Paul's saying, do away with. That's the attitude he's saying, do away with while you're here on the earth. Because God's plan is greater than anything that you and I can envision. God's intent for Israel will be a rejoicing like nothing before. 
He said, what will it be other than life from the death? You remember the Bible says there's more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner that comes to Jesus than a hundred righteous people that repent? What do you think the rejoicing in heaven is going to be? What do you think the angel choirs are going to sound like when Israel, the nation of Israel, turns back to their God? It's going to be an awesome thing. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word. Thank you that it's true. Thank you that you do have a plan for all of us. Lord, we pray for Israel. We pray for the peace of Jerusalem. We pray that you would guide their leaders in this day when everybody seems to be turning away from them. We thank you, Father, that your hand is upon them and that your covenant promises with Israel, with Abraham, shall be realized. We thank you, Father, that the Bible is true where it says all Israel, the nation of Israel, shall be saved. Thank you, Father, for opening doors among the Jews today that they might receive Jesus. And thank you, Father, for the culmination of your perfect plan, the mystery that will help us to have the right attitude toward the unsaved, whether they're Jews or Gentiles. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Amen. God bless you. Thank you for being with us.